Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Look out across this land we love. There's freedom. It's an inherent American right. Police parade down streets, proud descendants of the slave patrol. All summer, my uncle can't sleep, and he was born free. And he ain't never been. Most may now know the 19th of June is a time for celebration. <gasps> oh, happy Juneteenth! And while it may now be officially celebrated as America's newest national holiday, it's more than 150 years in the making. So if Juneteenth marks the official end of American slavery, why is it just now becoming a marker in American history? It was still hard after that. White governments brought in Jim Crow and tried to bring things back as near to slavery as they could get it. The holiday and its meaning re-entered the national consciousness as we reflected on the life and death of George Floyd. This day is about more than the emancipation of slaves. It's about passing down the history of a people. So join us this Juneteenth as we celebrate and continue the work of those who came before by honoring our traditions, investing in our communities, and sharing the resilience and the joy that is the Black experience. There is the ability of our community to create wealth, and then there is closing the wealth gap. everybody. As Revolt and Vice team up for the culture to present a second annual Juneteenth special, I'm your host, Mara Schiavocampo. Now, let's get to business. More specifically, Black-owned business. In recent years, there's been a huge emphasis on supporting Black businesses. And Juneteenth is the perfect occasion to discuss why buying Black is so important. You might not think of Juneteenth as a shopping holiday, but maybe you should. On a day all about freedom and progress, black businesses have changed the game in ways worth celebrating. Black entrepreneurs have cornered the market in rap music, own one-tenth of the country's hotels, and since the pandemic have started more small businesses than at any time in the last 25 years. And buying black-owned does more than support business growth. It allows owners to invest in the communities and causes they serve. Today, as we commemorate Juneteenth, we're going to highlight some good news in the black community, like how black businesses are hot and getting even hotter. But how do we close the wealth gap to reflect that? How the support of HBCUs and education has quadrupled. And with everything that's going on, we've got a hit on the mental health stigma and how we can help our brothers and sisters who are dealing with this issue. So let's get right to it. We have a lot to talk about, and we have a dope panel to talk about it with. They're going to help tell us why we should uplift black businesses on Juneteenth. Well, I'm sure most of you have heard of our first guest. She's been called the serial entrepreneur, Pinky Cole, founder and CEO of Slutty Vegan, who in just four years has five locations valued at $100 million. Another CEO you may know is comedian B. Simone from Wild and Out. She has funded her own beauty brand. She is also an author and a musical artist, quite the multi-hyphenate. We have Derek Hayes, founder of Big Dave's Cheesesteaks. He brought his Philly roots to Atlanta, serving 10,000 customers a week. 
Meet Dr. Lakeisha Hallman, known as Dr. Key. She founded the Village Market ATL in 2016. She served over 1,400 businesses and facilitated over $6.3 million of sales to black-owned businesses. And last but not least, Keon Davis, founder of Smooth and Groove, a smoothie and juice bar, which he started inside a gym. Thank you, everybody, for being here and for helping us celebrate Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. Thank, Thank you. you. This is a great intro. <laughs> so, uh, Pinky, I want to start with you uh, because you are known as a serial entrepreneur. And we just got out of a really tough time as a country. We just came out of the pandemic. And that was really hard in particular for a lot of businesses. But your business grew. How did you do that? I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, you know, I started Slutty Vegan in 2018, and it was only supposed to be a ghost concept. So here I am, I have this concept that became very popular overnight. And then I realized that this is bigger than burgers, pies, and fries. Like, people really want to be a part of this movement. Mm -hmm. So as I continue to open up locations and do brand partnerships, I realized that I had something really special. And what I had was a weatherproof business. And I don't know if y'all ever heard of that before, but a weatherproof business is, it don't matter if it's raining, sleeting, snowing, hailing, your business will still thrive and be successful. So during the pandemic, at first, we were trying to figure out, like, what the hell is going on? What is a pandemic, right? So many of us were trying to figure out what it meant, how it would affect our businesses. And as a socially responsible entrepreneur, I knew that I had to make some really tough decisions. So I closed my business for about two weeks. And that was the best decision I ever made, because what it did is it allowed me the opportunity to really step back and recharge. And when I came back, oh, it was over with. Yeah. And when I say it was over with, I was able to open up at least three locations in the middle of a pandemic. Wow. Grow my business 100% year over year. And unfortunately, most businesses can't say that, but I was fortunate enough to be able to create something that was building an ecosystem that could also help people and grow my brand to now $100 million. So I'm excited about Ooh, that. Congratulations Thank on you. that. That is quite an accomplishment. Yeah. So since you are the boss, I want to turn this over to you because you are our business expert here. I want, want you to lead this conversation and it's all family. So I'm going to let you take this portion away. I want to start with the village market queen herself, Dr. Key, who is one of my very, very close friends. Um, talk to us about what is the hardest advice that you've ever gotten and how you've been able to use that advice and apply it to your business to make it successful. Of course you'll start with a hard question. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, friend. Um, but I'm super happy to be here. Now, I believe that hard advice that I've gotten from mentors, even from families, that everybody can't go. Um, when I first heard that I was in, in all of my naiveness and cup half full personality, that I'm gonna take everybody. Yeah. And I remember my mentor saying, my grandmother saying, Everybody won't be on the, be at the end with you, and half will cut off in the middle. Mm. And I think for entrepreneurs, it's very important to know that you got your starting team, the people that's going to help you out the gate. Mm -hmm. And then as you run the leg of the race, some people are going to fall off. Mm -hmm. You're going to be disappointed by some folks. Some people may, uh, unfortunately, get jealous of your climb. And then as you really ascend at the apex of this journey, it's on a few folks up there. But then what I also learned from that advice is that when you get to that apex, you get new friends. You get the mm -hmm. pinkies of the world, the D's of the world. People will be there every leg of the journey. Yeah. So you, that heart can stay on your sleep, but no one's going to get knocked off. Mm. That's, that's yeah. a really important note, because as we grow our business, myself especially, I realize that your team is only as good as the people that you choose. Yeah. So, Derek, 
by the way, y'all know who Derek is. <laughs> I don't know. Does everybody know? <laughs> if you don't know, just look down. Where's the camera? Um, <laughs> we, heard this, we heard this interview already. <laughs> Derek, talk to us about, and I think that this is very important. Oftentimes, when we start small businesses, we do everything ourselves, right? Like, in the restaurant space, we're the fry cook, we flip the burgers, we shake the fries. But there comes a time where you have to stop working in the business and you got to start working on the business in order for it to grow. So talk to me about how you were able to do that and if there was any difficulty along the way and what advice would you tell other entrepreneurs who are in the middle of trying to figure out when do I leave, how long should I stay, and when is it time to really like let go and let go of control and grow my business? Um, well, that's a good question. Well, I think uh, first you got to start off with saying whether you want to be a worker or you want to scale your business because... Um, I sat with a billionaire, and he said, if you could step out your business and, and, and people still will like your brand and it's still able to get the same popularity and people love the food, then you got something that will scale. Mm. Now, for me, it was hard because I was the fry cook, I was the cashier, I was making cheesesteaks, I was halfway accounting, well, as much as I knew. But um, I think all realness of it is you have to be real with yourself and say, listen, I can't run this by myself. If people get used to just looking at me, the business can't grow. So I, I had to step out when I grew my downtown location. It was the hardest thing I had to do, like, you know, getting off the grill, because I was used to people saying, you know, Big Dave, you know, make the best cheesesteaks, and everybody walking up to me. But then I had to say, you know, I want my employees now to deliver the same quality of food that I started in 2014. And I think the hardest thing still today is getting people to take that same culture from location to location to location. And when you're able to do that, now you can scale your brand. So. Um, I think that's the hardest thing to do is walking out, especially when you are the face of your brand. But for me, it worked for me because I ain't, I ain't been, you know, making cheesesteaks in about so, a year now. So we're going to take a very quick break because okay. I want to hear more from everybody, including from the two guests that we have not heard from and more from you because there's a lot of knowledge here in this room and I want to get to all of it. So when we come back, how are the kids making money these days? And is it the same thing as actually building a sustainable business? We'll be right back with more of the Revolt and Vice Juneteenth special. Welcome. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Back, we're here talking about business growth. And in just a second, we're going to talk about how younger generations are making money and what we can learn from them and maybe what they can learn from us. But before we get to that, I do want to finish the conversation that we were having. So I'm going to turn it over to Pinky, my illustrious co-host, um, to continue with our excellent panel. Well, you know, while we were on break, I was thinking about being disruptive as an entrepreneur. So I want to toss this question over to you, V. Talk to us about how important it is to be authentically yourself yeah. when you are building a business as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Because oftentimes, there are people that are afraid to just be themselves. But I realize success really comes when you can just confidently show up as you. So talk to us about that. Yeah, well, that's what got me to this point. I think that's what got all of us to this point. Even like today, I was like, can I cuss on here? You know? <laughs> but there's a time and a place. I'm not going to be the same on Wild and Out as I am on a panel giving entrepreneurship advice. There's a time and a place, but you still have your personality and who you truly authentically are in every single moment in every aspect so that's what got me to this point when we're talking about authenticity i saw all of you nodding yeah <laughs> you're covered in tattoos yeah. your hair is yeah. natural your yeah. hair is short you're covered in tattoos a yeah. few generations ago none of you would have been welcome into the business space mm -hmm. yeah keon how have you found that showing up authentically as yourself has helped you and when has it been a challenge so for me it, it all started like back in college right so i went to tuskegee university 
and I was in a business house. So what we had to do is we had to wear business casual, mm. right? We had to have the right socks on. We couldn't have earrings, had to have ties going into business class. And as I, when I came out and when I graduated and I started my own company, when they would invite me back to speak, they like, hey, you know, you can't have your hat on. I said, mm. no, I'm gonna have my hat on. Wow. Right? They like, well, no, that's not business. I said, well, listen, the difference for me is, is that I run my own business, right? Yeah. No one can tell me how to dress. I dress for comfort, exactly. yeah. right? One of the things I do is it's all about comfort for me. So if I'm comfortable in a space, I'm gonna perform my best. Well, all of you are so clearly committed to giving back, and Pinky, you gave back recently in a very unique way. Pinky was this year's commencement speaker at Clark Atlanta University, and you shocked the graduates when you announced that you would be giving everyone their own LLC. What was the reaction like? Crazy. It, it was amazing um, for, for so many reasons, you know, to be able to go back to my alma mater and give back in the way that I did. That was the best feeling in the world, felt better than money. And hopefully they use that as a path to entrepreneurship to follow their wildest dreams. And that's an, yeah. it's an amazing start. And you're an amazing woman. And all of you are wonderful entrepreneurs. Well, we're going to continue this conversation with the panel. But first, thank you, Pinky, for being my co-host. And you. for blessing us with all your knowledge. Uh, you definitely are a true inspiration to, to so many out there. So we will be back in just a second. Welcome back, everyone. So as we continue talking business, we want to focus now on closing the wealth gap, what that really means and how to actually achieve it. Joining us now is Tarek Brooks, president of Combs Enterprises. But before we get to that conversation, let's take a quick look at why it's essential to close the wealth gap. I think the racial wealth gap speaks to the fact that we still have a long way to go to achieve ideals of equality in this country. The richest 400 American billionaires have more total wealth than all 10 million black households. Such disparity generations in the making as blacks were held back from owning land and building equity over generations while white families built wealth that grew and grew. This is something that started with slavery, but it's never diminished over time. And that's because government policy keeps perpetuating the circumstances for the wealth gap. The racial wealth gap is a measure of the white family and the African-American family that's right smack dab in the middle, the median. The median white household has a net worth 10 times that of the median black household, $171,000 to $17,600, a difference that's growing with the total racial wealth gap a startling $10.14 trillion. It amounts to $840,900 on average between a black and white household. It's like if you're black in this country, you have to be like, well, what the hell? What's up with us? Closing the wealth gap is vital and must address issues like lower wages, higher unemployment, and housing discrimination among black populations, as well as reparations. How do you close this gap, this huge gap in wealth between whites you and don't. blacks? Reparations. Right? Reparations. How much are we talking about here, Tanasi? Well, we don't actually know, although I, I will well, take good. a check on behalf of myself. <laughs> I think reparations have to happen for black people. You know what I mean? Because slavery was America's original sin. And I really don't think no good is going to come to this country until they atone for their original sin, which was slavery. Tarek, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you join this conversation, um, especially with your expertise in the business world, because you are the president of Combs Enterprises. That includes a lot of different businesses in different industries. So based on your experience in the business space, what do you think are the top ways to start closing this wealth gap? Thank you very much for ha having me. I'm happy to be here and be a part of such an important discussion. Um, I, I think it's important for 
the black community to realize that there are, there are really two issues. There is the ability of our community to create wealth, and then there is closing the wealth gap. I think there are a lot of things that we can do as a community that will help close the wealth gap and create wealth, uh, including um, better habits around investing and uh, creating assets that appreciate in value. Uh, home ownership is a, is a key factor in creating wealth. In fact, it's the kind of biggest factor that most Americans use to create wealth. Um, and I think what we need to also recognize is that to close the wealth gap, um, we are going to deal, we're going to have to deal with things that have been institutionally put in place that created the wealth gap in the first place, right? The wealth gap is a result of systematic um, economic racially biased policies and, and, and that, that have affected our community in ways that have set us behind. And so now the burden is is on us to figure out how we build wealth uh, to be able to work work our way back to parity. Um, and that and that wealth gap has a, a real impact on the economy. Um, McKinsey suggests that the the economic impact of the wealth gap on the U.S. is about one to one and a half trillion dollars. Uh, and so it's it's a problem that affects all of us. And when we talk about what that looks like on an individual level, one of the, the themes that resonated with the panel here, all entrepreneurs, was the idea of operating authentically, being your authentic self, um, and what that means in a business space, especially as a black entrepreneur. What's your experience in terms of authenticity in the entrepreneurship world, in the business world as a black man? Yeah, so black entrepreneurship is key to, to creating wealth for our community. One, because uh, as an entrepreneur with ownership, with equity, you are able to capture more of the value that is created by the business that you own, right? And that, that is a, a wealth accumulation vehicle. Uh, black entrepreneurs are also able to be intentional about who they hire, about the vendors they use. So they are able to drive where dollars are going every day. At Combs Enterprises, more than 63% of, uh, of the businesses we do business with are black owned. And that is very intentional. We also have an extremely diverse workforce. And so we are able to do that because we are a black-led business. And you know the way things should work, if we are able to help uh, encourage folks to circulate our dollars throughout our community, uh, we are able to uh, first spend money with our vendors. Those vendors are able to spend money by hiring black employees uh, and also working with additional black firms. And that's how you get dollars to move through our community in a great way. Um, right now, when you look at the statistics, um, a dollar that goes into other communities, you know, the Asian American community, the Jewish American community, stays in that community for 20 to 30 days. A dollar that comes into the black community right now stays in uh, for less than six hours, right? So we need to be very intentional as entrepreneurs uh, about authentically owning that we want to help our communities and do that by ensuring that dollars move through our community um, with, with, with more frequency and stay in our community longer. Um, I want to bring the panel back in now. One thing that I found really interesting about our conversation is that you all weren't focusing on, you know, how to get a loan, on the, the nuts and bolts. What you all have talked about, by and large, is inspiration, conquering fear, trusting your instincts, and having other people in your circle that can support you on this journey. Dr. Key, you say that support is a verb. What do you mean by that? Um, support being a verb is if you are behind black businesses, if you're behind black communities, if you are behind black education, black resources, it should be some action behind that. Mm. So beyond talking about it, what does your doing look like? Uh, and for me, that doing has to be tangible. So I believe if you support black businesses, I should look at your receipts at the end of the month. 
and how much of that went to a black business. I should see if you have children and things that I empower my friends who are mothers to do. Is that a black pediatrician? Are these black schools or black organizations that mm. you're feeding your kids into? And how you start making sure that dollar recycles in a community longer than six hours, it lasts for six hours because we're spending in one place and then we go somewhere else to spend again. Mm -hmm. And so it, that circulation stops. So if you're spending in the morning, who are you spending with at lunch? Who's the person that's cutting your, cutting your yard? Who's the person that's shaping up your beard? Who's fixing a roof at your house? All of these things we can start building and circulating the dollar in our community that will last what it used to do in the days of Tulsa within months. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Once the, wow. the dollar stayed in our communities because we were segregated and we were forced to build and do for self. But any time in this, in this country, when, when it works for us, when, when the model that was meant to break us down, we created so many black millionaires. And what happened? Bombs were drop, uh, dropped on those communities. And at the end of that, all these black millionaires had insurance they were not allowed their insurance claims. Wow. So there's a reason behind that six hours. I love that stat, but I also love to talk about the roots. Because when we talk about the six hours, we're talking about the systems, uh, the symptoms of systemic racism. Mm. You know, one of the things I always think about when, I, when we talk about Tulsa is the effect that's had, that's had generationally. You know, what impact would that wealth have had mm. over the years oh, with God. interest on the children and the grandchildren right. of all of those who lost all of that wealth? It's, it's really important because intergenerational wealth is also something that is not equal in black communities as it is in others. Um, I do want to quickly go back to some specifics and one thing that you mentioned, B, and you talked about social media. Mm -hmm. And you are a social media star. You have done what so many people today, especially young people, aspire to do. You have created a massive social media audience that, mm -hmm. that is coming to you for content in two huge industries, beauty and fitness. You've yeah. turned it into a business. Yeah. How do you grow your following to the point where you have numbers that can actually make you some money and how do you monetize your following yeah i just put out organic raw real content how mm. and that's why it's sometimes hard for me to put out content because i put out content based off my emotion and how i feel and my assistant gets mad at me all the time she's like you need to post today i'm like it's not organic do you today. plan it i don't you don't have like a I'm, scheduler and I, time post not. And i post when i feel it so mm. i think that is a part of me posting in real time and being authentic and being relatable Speaking of authenticity, that's something that we frequently hear from, uh, you know, Combs Enterprises. Yeah. Um, Tarek, how, talk about authenticity and how important it is to the Combs brand and why you think it's so crucial today to have that as a component of any business. Yeah, I would argue one of the things that, that has been a, a major driver to Sean Combs' success is, is his authenticity. Um, it, he, he is very um, 
deliberate about not putting out a product, whether that's um, uh, music, you know, one of our spirits brands, content on remote, that he doesn't genuinely believe in. Yep. And what being an entrepreneur has enabled him to be able to do is dictate, you know, the things he does and does not do based on what's authentic to him. And so one of the things that as, as the president of the company, I'm very proud of is there's nothing that we do. There's nothing that we put into the market that we don't genuinely stand behind uh, and, and are proud of. And, and, and that's what being an entrepreneur enables one to be able to do. It enables you to be your authentic self and, and, and open up that opportunity. Well, and everyone on this panel certainly is an example of that, of being authentic and having that be tremendously successful in business and, you know, also making a little money while you're at it. So yeah. congratulations to all of you <laughs> on that. You. Thank you for Thank joining you. us. Thank you to our panel. When we come back, we're going to get real about an issue that is affecting our communities across the country. We're confronting our discomfort with mental health challenges and removing the stigma once and for all. That's coming up next. According to the National Alliance on Mental Health, one in three black adults who need mental health care actually receive it, only one in three. Some of that may stem from racism or simply a lack of resources. Recently, the headlines have been inundated with stories about families grieving about the loss of loved ones due to suicide. More than 80% may experience shame and worry that they could be discriminated against because of their illness. So we often don't talk about these things or seek help. The stressors of a global pandemic and the nation's racial reckoning have shed new light on the issue of mental health for black Americans. But as a generation dealing with isolation and depression grows more open about their struggles, longstanding stigmas put them at risk in their hour of need. In recent years, suicide rates have increased dramatically for black adults in the US, a trend that's only continued since the start of the pandemic. It's a heartbreaking but preventable epidemic and a cure that starts with confronting the taboo of mental illness in the black community. How do we eradicate that stigma? Well, to discuss that, we have a great panel who can address the real on combating mental illness. Joining us from L.A. is the illustrious Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Michelle Williams. Psychologist Dr. Ebony Butler is here with us in the studio. Producer-director Corey Knott. Marketing guru Angel Barnwell, whose mental health platform is called SmileHo, H-E-A-U-X. And also joining us virtually is Ty Tribbett, who you know as a Grammy-winning gospel singer and songwriter. Michelle, I want to start with you, because this is something you have been very public and vocal about. You have two books, Checking In, How Getting Real About Depression Saved My Life and Can Save Yours, and The Daily Check-In, A 60-Day Journey Defining Your Strength, Faith, and Wholeness. You have been so open about depression and suicidal thoughts and the lessons that you've learned about prioritizing your mental health. Tell us about that journey. Uh, the journey started um, in 2013 is when I first talked about it publicly. I just was kind of regretful. Did I do the right thing? But a few people pulled me to the side and thanked me, specifically men, thanked me for sharing the story. And I said, you know what, because men don't normally respond or share. Um, they are more now, but even in 2013, many men weren't sharing or talking about um, depression publicly. It's something that people have been dealing with silently. Fast forward to 2018, I had to check into a treatment facility. Um, and again, uh, something I wasn't ready to talk about publicly yet, but a particular platform, by the time they know what's going on, you kind of have to say something. 
I don't have any shame about it. And I think that it is helping. Um, you talk about how to eradicate stigma is just people being open and honest. Not everybody has to shout it from the rooftops like I do, but maybe someone uh, who works alongside of you, you can share your journey with them. And that can help eradicate stigma little by little. Yeah, those conversations are so important to have. And Dr. Ebony, you have made it easier for people to have these conversations by creating my therapy cards. What are those? So my therapy cards are a deck of cards that I actually created out of a need actually. So as a psychologist in Texas, I was actually the only PhD in the city, which is a problem, the only black woman practicing. So I wanted to be able to help people have access to better questions, not just affirmations while I love them. I think that we need to put the, uh, the questions in the hands of people who can do some real work. So I took the questions that I ask clients in my everyday practice and I put them in the card deck. And I wanted black folks to have permission to do work in the mental health field. A lot of people don't know that the mental health field actually started out with, for black folks as a way to decriminalize us. So I wanted people to actually be able to do some quality work and work against stigma, work against cost, work against access. I wanted it to be more affordable because therapy is expensive. And I wanted people to be able to use questions and have access to questions that a real therapist is asking because of geographical limitations, everybody can access a therapy, mm -hmm. a therapist. So I wanted that to be the case. And so we created the deck for women, and then we created the deck for black girls, and then we created the deck for black men. For black men. So mm -hmm. speaking of black men, Corey, hey. you are known for being a great dancer, for personifying black boy joy, mm -hmm. um, but you have also gone through some hard times, um, and one situation in particular. Um, tell us about that particular circumstance and how it affected you. Sure. Um, um, I'm also a producer, so I was in LA filming in 2019, and I was set up at gunpoint. And I remember, you know, all the conversations that I had with this particular person. I was like, oh, you know, I'm giving them information, I'm giving them nuggets, I'm giving them, you know, um, you know, just different things what they can do to further their career because we went to we were in the same department in college, but he just dropped out. So I'm just thinking, you know, things are still the same way. Fast forward 15 years later, they're not. And so I remember coming outside and getting ready to get in the vehicle. And then all of a sudden, in broad daylight, I was robbed by two people. And then I remember them saying, where's the money? So you were my, robbed at gunpoint. At gunpoint. Mm -hmm. As a black man, uh, we already have a target on our backs. But then being black and gay is another. So those, um, what happened, I kind of bottled it in. And then it wasn't until I was, um, <clears throat> I was grieving someone. And then it came out later on down the road. But it, it goes to show that we don't talk about anxiety enough, don't talk about depression, and it seems to seep out at the wrong times, causing a, a yeah. bigger spiral effect. And, and it speaks to the way trauma stays with us. So Ty, I also want to talk to you about a dark time that you experienced, and this was a little bit different. This was during your marriage. What happened? Oh, uh, I have many dark times uh, <laughs> growing up. I grew up in a very religious sect, a very religious household. My dad was a pastor. My mom was like the choir director and all that stuff. So I'm the PK. So the expectation of perfection was over my life. So that's where a lot of my anxiety started growing up in the church and trying to be perfect for God and perfect for the church and perfect for every young person at the church. You're the example. You're this. So a lot of my anxiety started from, from fear and just trying to please everybody. And then in school, I was the the black buck tooth boy who was skinny and so I was bullied at school a whole If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat then that wasn't a road trip it was just a really long drive 
At participating McDonald's. A lot. So once I got married, my wife experienced what we postpartum. Everybody knows about postpartum now. I was like 23. I got married at 21. My wife was 18, so we didn't know nothing about postpartum. I just knew my wife had an attitude, and she ain't <laughs> like me no more. And we we probably ain't gonna make it because she tripping. That's all I knew. <laughs> I, uh, that's all I knew at that time. I didn't understand postpartum. I didn't understand any of that. I wasn't educated on that. I just knew how to praise God and sing and all that stuff. So, uh, uh, of course, that, that opened doors for other uh, temptations, and I fell to that temptation, and that was a very dark season of our life. My wife and I were separated for a few months, uh, so that anxiety and stuff really, really increased in, in my life as well. Depression, suicidal thoughts, all of that. And the way I made it out, I mean, I got a relationship with God, and I think that is very imperative and important, but along with the relationship with God, he puts people in your life. So I thank God for him, and I thank God for the positive people around me that kept me up. Yeah, well, speaking of positive people, Angel, smile ho. Every time I say it, I smile. How did you come up with this, and what is your mission? The origin of smile ho comes from me having a mirror bitch moment from Issa Rae. And I didn't realize A mirror it. bitch moment. A mirror bitch. So yourself in the mirror with me. Yes, so Issa Rae has a mirror bitch moment. Um, she's in the mirror with herself. And I was having my own moment. And that was a phrase that I said to myself, that's the origin. And then miraculously, it just hit me one day in October last year. I was like, I'm going to use this as the name because there's a lot of meaning behind it for me. So what is the mission? So the mission is to eradicate the stigmas around mental health in the black community because there are so many of us that are here that are rallying behind the need for the awareness, the awareness for the illnesses, and also the care. So people can feel good about themselves. I want people to feel good about themselves. So now I'm gonna start screaming it from the mountaintops from a consumer viewpoint that this is what I want for myself and this is what I want for my community. And Michelle, I'm gonna give you the last word on this. And as also as a woman who's spoken very publicly about your faith, how important that is to you, if you're talking to a faith-based community, which is so many of us, what would you say about reducing the stigma within that community? Uh, what I would say to the faith-based community is to let people know, listen, a therapy does not replace Christ. Sometimes we were just taught to pray about it. You know, just pray about it. And a lot of times you sweep stuff under the rug and you, you might go to the altar, but you're still going home to dysfunction. I love the point that you make, that the two things are not exclusive. You can do both. All wonderful information. Thank you all for your time. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the importance of HBCUs and the difference that they are making in the black community. Stay with us. Welcome back. We now turn our attention to the important tradition of historically black colleges and universities, a source of great pride and joy that we must protect at all times. From Howard to Hampton, from Bowie State to Bethune-Cookman, America's HBCUs have shared a mission since their founding to keep knowledge within reach. Providing affordable education for black students hasn't always been easy. The underfunding goes back to literally the existence of these schools. But after years of being on the brink, it's safe to say HBCUs are back, setting records with enrollment numbers and getting huge financial gifts from donors. McCorb Maker, five-star recruit, is committing to an HBCU. And recruiting some of the nation's most talented collegiate athletes. It's a surge in interest historically black colleges haven't seen since the 90s. 
when a little show about a fictional college put HBCUs on the map. Today, HBCUs continue to have a reach and a responsibility that extends far beyond their campuses. Meet our guests now who have been fueling the surge of HBCUs and the importance of education. Joining us virtually, we have Dr. Steve Perry, who has been a champion fighting for disadvantaged children and families for more than 30 years. Here in the studio, Kiza Foster, Assistant Vice President of Institutional Advancement at Clark Atlanta University. King Randall is the 22-year-old who founded the X for Boys Life Preparatory School in Albany, Georgia, and Corey Arvinger, CEO of Support Black College Brand. Thank you all for joining us, Corey. I should also add that you are an entrepreneur, a media strategist, and the CEO of the clothing line Support Black Colleges. Dr. Perry, I'd like to start with you because you say something that's very instructive. You talk about how the success of life is determined by where you end, not where you start. What do you mean by that, and what role does education play in that? First of all, I'd like to thank Revolt for taking the time to discuss this very important topic. The impact of historically black colleges cannot be uh, overstated. What I mean by that is that we don't get to determine to whom and where we are born, but through opportunities such as education, we can enrich our lives and change the trajectory of not just our lives, but those of many others. And there is no set of institutions more effective at changing the trajectory of people's lives than historically black colleges. Um, and Kiza, when it comes to protecting those institutions, you know, funding is very important. Um, and you talk specifically about the importance of alumni funding. Why is that so important? Well, it's very important because as alum, I, I work at Clark Atlanta University, but I'm also an alum of Clark Atlanta University. And most alumni have a great affinity. You know, when you talk about um, HBCUs throughout the country, people lead with, I went to an HBCU, they support um, the HBCU brands. So we need to turn that support into funding because most of our um, HBCUs rely on the support of their alums. And King, you founded your school when you were just 19 years old. I mean, you're still such a young man um, doing such important work. Why was it important for you to do that so early in life? And what's your mission with the school? Uh, well, for most of the young men where I live in Albany, Georgia, they don't get a chance to see possible, uh, especially, um, you know, just around their local community. Uh, most of them get to see success from the, their rappers or the football players or athletes, etc. One of my classmates, uh, his, his brother, um, actually, uh, he killed someone. And um, my classmate actually went to jail for 30 years for hiding the weapon and he wasn't even there. Um, and that kind of stuck out to me because we don't have any true recidivism programs uh, where I live um, aimed at keeping the children out of jail. We have functional family therapy, but they only meet once a week um, and for three months. And I don't think that is true uh, rehab for our students, you know, and our boys in our community. So I started teaching young men uh, how to work on cars and houses, uh, how to te teaching them how to grow their own food, teaching them about family. Um, as I did that, I discovered many of the young men didn't know how to read um, and write. Um, and many of them were 11 to 17. The work that you're describing, I would expect to be hearing from someone in their 50s or 60s. I mean, mm -hmm. you are 22 and you have already done so much. Where does that come from in you? Because as you say, in your community, you saw so much lack in terms of vision. Where does your vision come from? Um, well, I credit that to being raised by a full family. Um, I think that's extremely important uh, for just our, you know, the black community in general. We need to get that full family back. Uh, Corey, I want to talk about your clothing line. Why, why did you start this clothing line and what is the mission with it? 
Yeah, definitely. I think it was extremely important to start it. When I got to Howard University, I realized that I didn't really know what the HBCU experience was about. My mom went to Howard, she always talked about it, but I didn't really understand truly. So my first day on campus from being from Greensboro, North Carolina, moving to Washington, D.C. to the Mecca, it was an eye-opening experience. I saw so many black people, people that looked like me that were valedictorians, salutatorians, voted most popular, whatever it might be, and I didn't know that existed from my small city. So once I saw it, I was like, I need everybody to know about this, but I wanted to go from a different approach, not necessarily like, oh, just go to a college fair or let's just talk about it online. Like, let me put it in a tangible way you can see it and actually feel it and touch it and then also be a walking billboard. And that leads us right to our mission, which is to get our kids back to our schools. And Dr. Perry, we have seen this resurgence in recent years in terms of applications to HBCUs, a number of applicants, um, grants and funding. Why do you think we're seeing this now and what needs to be done to keep this going? which is both good and bad, because as uh, a head of schools, of, of schools in capital prep schools in Connecticut and New York, it's actually become a bit more competitive to get into some of the schools. Some of the schools that we anticipated uh, our young people would be able to get into with certain GPAs, it's actually raised, the, the rising tide has raised all ships. And it's super important because where we are now is we're at a time when African-Americans are still fighting some of the same remnants of racism. And many of our young people need to be in schools where they're seen as whole by virtue of the fact that they are there. It's not just enough at, at Capital Prep, which is the schools that we founded and run, for our scholars to go on to college. Every single one of our students must apply to at least one historically black college because our students call our schools historically black high schools, so why not send them to HBCUs? And the reason... Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's because we want them to feel what it feels like to matter on campus as well. It doesn't mean that we're against PWIs, Quite frankly, what we recognize is many of our children, when they get to HBCUs, they get a sense of self that even we in our communities could not provide for them. They get to see the other part of the black experience, not just the poverty and challenges of the black experience, but the intellect and, and, and compelling academic experiences that are rich and, and, and so much a part of what it is that young people who get to explore that um, get to see. King, I want to give you the last word on this because you are the future and you are working with future leaders in terms of the, the young men um, that you're working with. What are your goals for your school and what is the vision that you have for black education in this country? Sure. Um, well, for many of the young men in our program, I believe in developing habits. Uh, I served time in the Marine Corps and uh, some of the habits that I built uh, there, um, I transferred to some of the students because the way in which they taught us um, it made some things that I do now I can't stop doing because of the habits they built. And I believe that habits build character and character makes the man. Uh, so they'll have routines every day. Um, this will be a boarding school, so they'll have routines such as waking up at a certain time, working out at a certain time, 
when they first get to our school, they have an initial strength test. We'll see how many pull-ups they can do, how far they can run, body, body fat, et cetera. Those are physical things. Then we'll check their academics, et cetera. We want to create a full man by the time they graduate uh, from school. And many of the young men uh, that I've worked with, you know, whom have records and violent uh, offenses, et cetera, these children are, you know, angels. Um, around me and our program. It's just many of them have a horrible environment that they're around. And so for many boys who are fatherless and uh, you know, don't have any men around, they're gonna mimic whatever man they see around. Um, and whether that be somebody you know, who's like me or that be somebody else out there. And I believe every man should be responsible for some children that are not his. Because um, how do you consider yourself a full father and you're not in the community where your child has to grow up? Um, so I think that's uh, important. But for our students, you know, we wanna create a full man uh, create husbands, fathers, and protectors for their community. Um, that's something I believe in wholeheartedly. Uh, so we have many different things they'll be doing at our school, such as band, firearms training, chorus, uh, martial arts, um, general contracting, automotive repair. These are things they'll be doing on a weekly basis. Even swimming. Um, our boys don't know how to swim, so they'll be doing that on a weekly basis also. Uh, so just all of these different things, you know, combined into education for them to start in sixth grade and go all the way to twelfth grade. By the time they graduate from school, they'll be unstoppable. You're doing amazing work, as are the rest of our panelists. Thank you all for your time. We really appreciate you joining us for this conversation. And as we observe Juneteenth today with celebrations, food, drink, family, and friends, maybe some cookouts, let's remember to honor our ancestors and to think of them as they endured a life of slavery and suffering. Thank you to our awesome guests who have given us much more than a wake-up call. They gave us the tools to start doing what we can to make our lives more successful. Again, we'd like to say thank you to our presenting sponsor, Walmart, whose Live Better You program continues to help HBCU graduates tackle one of society's most complex challenges of preventing student debt by allowing associates to achieve career mobility and economic stability by covering 100% of program tuition and books. That's amazing. In 2021, Walmart added three leading historically black colleges and universities to the slate of Walmart's Live Better You academic partners. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. 
and don't even get me started on the music, Pam offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.